Welcome to A State of Mind. This is Julian Royce. The difference between you have a unique gift and what do you want to be when you grow up? Right. That that <laughs> gap could be just as wide as the Grand Canyon in terms of the whole, I want to be a rock star, I want to be an astronaut, I want to be a doctor, you know, those kind of things, or an NBA basketball player. And not that those are aspirations we should squelch. And they're also pretty typical and maybe a little boring, not very specific. <laughs> <laughs> very specific to them, to who you are. Today I'm speaking with Jeff James Howard. Jeff is a psychotherapist based out of Boulder, Colorado. Though as he shares in our conversation today, he is shifting away from calling himself a therapist and instead is describing himself as simply a guide or even soul guide, though he says he uses that term with some hesitation. And we discuss a number of topics here. Look at the show notes below for a more complete list. And those lists of topics will always be given in the order in which we get to them. So we talk about finding your life's purpose and the impact of the stories that we hear when we're growing up and that we tell our own children. Things like, you can be whatever you want to be. <laughs> and as we talk about here, one issue with that story is it's simply not true. Jeff shares about his experience doing wilderness vision quests, as well as men's work and the men's groups that he's been leading for, for years now. And you'll hear me in this conversation kind of stumbling, or to put it more charitably, thinking aloud. Because I think at its best, that's what you know this podcast can be, like thinking things through aloud, coming to a new understanding. So you'll hear me thinking aloud about a theory of how people change. One of the great mysteries, I think, I think Ken Wilber said this, one of the great mysteries about human beings is why we do anything at all. And, you know, as we discussed in this episode, habits are difficult to change, but of course not impossible. But there is a certain mystery to what it is that finally inspires change. Because so many of us are thinking about what we ought to be doing and yet not doing it. And as Jeff said, that kind of describes the human condition. So just thinking or having conceptual knowledge about something isn't enough to really impact our behavior. Um, and Jeff makes a great point about the adolescence of our culture in general. How it's pretty rare to find a fully mature, in the psychological sense, a fully mature adult. And he uses the term initiation here. Rare to find a fully mature initiated adult. And in the same vein, I would argue that the science of psychology itself is in a kind of adolescence in terms of its own stage of development. For example, as I just talked about, we don't have you know, a totally clear scientific understanding of change, of how people change. And we also lack, and this really blows my mind, we lack a clear scientific definition of what mind is. Um, in fact, uh, Dan Siegel, who's a, a great psychiatrist and doctor and master therapist, He's traveled and taught all around the world. He interviewed or surveyed thousands of mental health professionals, other therapists and psychologists, and he asked them what their definition or understanding of mind is. And he found 95% reported that in all their years of graduate school and in all their professional trainings, they were never even given a definition of mind. So of course it makes sense that they don't have a clear, coherent definition themselves. And in his own work, he developed uh, what he calls interpersonal neurobiology, and the definition of mind that he gives is, quote, an emergent, self-organizing, embodied, and relational process that regulates the flow of energy and information. 
So this is a beautiful, comprehensive, somewhat complex definition, and it speaks to the fact that mind, whatever it is, is not bound by the borders of our physical body. It exists in relationship, you know, the emotions and thoughts we experience depend on other people and situations. And, um, you know, my own study of Buddhism, there are many definitions of mind. And in fact, many different kinds of mind are defined. Uh, in the Tibetan and Sanskrit language, for example, there are many words for mind, you know, many words which might be translated just into mind or perhaps consciousness or awareness in our language. But in any case, they clearly have a richer vocabulary for discussing this kind of thing. But there's a simple definition of mind that I learned, um, and it's actually holds true in all the different levels of Buddhist teachings in Tibetan Buddhism, and it's learned in all the different schools of Tibetan Buddhism. So from the most, you know, so-called basic level of teachings to the most advanced teachings, is this definition of mind that is still invoked. And that is that mind is that which is clear and aware. So I'll leave that for now. And without further ado, I bring you Jeff James Howard. And I'm here today with Jeff James Howard. Jeff, thanks for being on the podcast. You're so welcome, Julian. Thanks for having me, man. And you are working as a therapist here in Boulder, Colorado also. Um, how would it's you want to introduce yourself and what you do? Well, <clears throat> I'm in the midst of a bigger transition from a uh, straight psychotherapist and calling myself more of a guide. Um, hmm. And it still has all the markings of psychotherapy. I still have that skill set of doing um, doing the kind of work that people come to expect with psychotherapy. And um, I sort of shudder at the term soul guide because I hear it a lot, especially in Boulder. And that's the direction I'm traveling towards, which is more about empowerment and what is uniquely ours to do as people in the world. Um, yeah, so that's that's the short version. I also lead men's groups, so yeah, that's partly how we we connected. So I get to be a part it's of true. one of your men's groups. It was great. Yeah, um, out in the kiva, it was cold. Be outside in the winter. <laughs> so we had a fire. <laughs> it was cold. Yeah, for those that don't know, don't know what a kiva is, it's a big hole in the ground with a fire pit. <laughs> also, a very short answer. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's interesting what you just said, um, that you are moving more towards maybe calling yourself a soul guide or, or doing work more in that realm. Yeah. I mean, like psychotherapy has a lot of baggage, like that term, right? It has a lot of, it can mean a lot of different well, think, things, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. For me, it it comes pre-packaged, kind of pre-loaded with, mm. with stories about what it's supposed to look like. Mm. And after nine years of doing this, I've realized I, I don't want to set myself up to be in the box of psychotherapy. Mm. Um, Cause I am more, uh, I'm more diverse than just a psychotherapist. So yeah, we'll work with wound. Yeah. We'll work with your stories and we'll also work with what has you come alive. 
Um, mm. What is yours to do? What are your central conundrums or challenges in your life? Um, and might those be connected in some way to what is yours to do in the world? That if it doesn't get done, no one else is going to do it. And that feels more like guiding, coaching, and ultimately empowering as opposed to someone really needing me as a psychotherapist mm. to feel like they're okay. It's more like, yeah, cool, let's go do some work and then go out back into the world and practice the stuff we talk about. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. Reminds me of like, hear this. I heard this when I was a kid a lot, but like that there's some maybe unique gifts that we all have. But yeah. maybe, uh, I'm just thinking back when I was a kid, maybe it wasn't always said with those words, but it was just some idea of what do you want to be when you grow up? And But the, sure. this idea you're speaking, it feels a little deeper, like that there's some calling. Some, like you said, there's something only you could do. Mm-hmm. Interesting way to look at it. Yeah, I appreciate those, those really common stories you just pointed to. <clears throat> the difference between you have a unique gift and what do you want to be when you grow up? Right. That, that <laughs> gap could be, just as wide as the Grand Canyon in terms of the whole, I want to be a rock star. I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a doctor, you know, those kind of things or an NBA basketball player. And not that those are aspirations we should squelch. And they're also pretty typical and maybe a little boring, not very specific, (laughs) not very specific to them, to who you are. Yeah. That's interesting to call them boring. I mean, they definitely are cliche prepackaged. They sound cool, but I wonder we have these ideas about what, like, like we have this idea, like we could be anything we want. And what do I want to be? And we think about it and like, this sounds cool. I'm going to be that versus what is my intrinsic calling? Like something I'm born to do almost. Right. Yeah. Like, what am I meant yeah, to I appreciate That's a very that. different, different way to look at it. Yeah. I appreciate that a lot, Julian, this idea, and this is a very American or very Western uh, ideology that we can be anything we want. <laughs> which frankly I think is destructive bullshit. It's absurd um, if you think about it. Yeah, it is absurd. <clears throat> it also has a lot of hubris kind of baked into it. Uh, okay. Yeah. A bunch of white privileged people can be anything they want to be. Uh, that's problematic. Hmm. You know, it goes against what, what I think is realistically the way the world works. We get born to a particular place. Yes. We have particular advantages or disadvantages, privileges, but the idea that I could be anything I want, talk about overwhelming. Mm. You know, it's like going to, instead of Baskin-Robbins 31 flavors, going to 3,000 flavors. It's like, oh, my God, what do I do? I'm probably going to default to vanilla. You know, <laughs> There's just too many things to choose from. And it has nothing to do with me personally or you personally. Right. Yeah, and I think there's also a role of our biology. You know, like some people, I mean, when I think about athletes and I think musicians to some degree fit into this category too, they're, they're born with a certain gift to some degree I mean, they put work in and develop it, but to have millions of people thinking they want to be the next LeBron James, like it's obviously not going to happen for millions of people. There's only going to be a few, a handful. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it's just, it sets us up for suffering, right? Yeah. I think it's so true. Yeah. I appreciate that. And I know you have a, a pretty deeply Buddhist background. And I agree. It sets us up for suffering. Samsara. Right? Yeah. This, this constant longing, the hungry ghost. Um, and, and that has me circling all the way back around to, in my mind here, I'll, I'll, I'll clue you in what I'm thinking. 
when we lead with our genuine longing, as opposed to an introject that is like cultural longing that gets put into me, it kind of injected into me mm. that I want to be LeBron James, or I want to be a rock star, or I want to be famous, or I want to be a model, whatever, I want to be a billionaire. I think that's the way to suffering, as opposed to leading with our genuine from our core longing, what has us come alive. Nice. Again, very different dispositions and, and, and orientations for how we approach our day-to-day life and our, our, our life as a whole. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that. I think, I think this is actually a really deep question that in part is um, a part of like privilege. Like we've created a society with enough abundance and freedom. Like we're always going after this freedom, like, to, like we're talking about, do what you want. And we think that will lead to happiness but it's it often doesn't it often leads to a lot of like like what we're talking about like you you every like so many of us feel like we're not good enough all the time or we're not you know we're not ending up like lebron james or whatever it is or <laughs> right. elon musk or whoever you know whatever but sure um yeah just the that more traditional societies had at least in my understanding, they, you would often like be born into a certain role. And I imagine that could be really stifling, but they didn't have this constant existential like angst of like, who am I? What am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I appreciate that. I think that in the, in the cultures you're alluding to, like say, um, yeah, indigenous cultures where, and um, again, no expert over here, but thinking about say collective society versus individualist society that it's kind of the air that they breathe and the water they swim in. Like the, the idea that it would be stifling to play a particular role might not actually make sense. <laughs> like, why, hmm, that's why, a good why wouldn't I play this role? <laughs> this is the role I play. I fit into this ecosystem of my culture, my, right. my larger, my family, my larger family, my larger culture. And this is the role that I play until I play a different role. Oh, was that like a squeaky toy with your dog? Yeah. <laughs> I could barely hear it. I was like, is that your chair squeaking? What is that? <laughs> the dog chewing on stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. Um, and so I wanted to ask you about your, like, how, how did you come to, like, get called to become a therapist? Boy, <clears throat> I've answered this question often, and it's a good question. Um. I want to say there's there's a, some kind of intelligence I can't really take credit for mm. consciously that was at work, <laughs> um, and and really truly, like, I, I was interested. I, I remember taking a, I, in high school. I had a teacher that it was a you know a semester or quarter whatever he did back then that was split up between home ec. Half of it was home ec and mm. half was psychology. And that was my first exposure to psychology. And uh, in addition to learning how to, you know, darn socks and <laughs> you know, <laughs> fix things with a needle. Um, and I really dug it. Uh, just was like, huh, cool. Planted the seed. And then many years later, it was basically being a, a client of therapists and realizing, oh, this shit works. Wow. If you pay attention and you... You put your energy towards uh, understanding something more and moving to shift it by mm. degree. It really works. 
Um, cool. So it was a bit of, like I said, a deeper intelligence I can't take credit for, maybe some kind of dumb luck. Uh, and I, I felt like, for one, I felt like I could do it, like I could be good enough at it. I had a minor in psychology in my undergrad and <clears throat> and was definitely interested in sociology and anthropology. And so, yeah, those things combined with realizing in my own therapy that, wow, this shit actually works. That's so cool. You could help people. Yeah. Um, so, so that was, that was mainly how it worked. So, yeah, I hear that um, being a client led you to seeing that it worked. I guess that leads me to another question. How do you see people actually making changes in their life? Like change seems like such a mysterious process where we often know you know, we know what we think we should do, but we have a hard time actually doing it, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you just described the human conundrum, Julian. Well done. Um, <laughs> I know I should eat better. I know I should drink less. I know I should wake up and meditate. Um, oh, I'm a huge proponent, Julian, of change by degrees, hmm. small things in the aggregate. And really, it's the antithesis of what we were talking about before, that we can be anything we want, we can do anything we want. That I find to be, again, so destructive. And, and here's where I'll bring in Carol Dweck, who's a Stanford prof and researcher, and she wrote a book um, called Mindset. And the long and short of that is there are two basic mindsets. One is a fixed mindset hmm. or the be good mindset. And the other is a growth mindset or get better mindset. Um, and we get hammered, inundated with a fixed, be good mindset. And so we can translate that into be beautiful, be handsome, be sexy, be smart, be talented, period. Um, and it's, it's a setup for failure, right? It's an all or nothing. It really feeds into the black or white aspects of culture. We're either good looking or we're ugly. We're either fat or we're skinny. Um, we're either smart or we're dumb, aka not smart enough. Mm. Or just translated to not enough. Right. Um, so in terms of change, I think so much of it for me revolves around um, slowing down consistently and noticing more often, well, okay, what's happening? And are we accurate reporters of our experience? And oftentimes we're really bad at reporting accurately about our experience. That's interesting, you know, right? Yeah. Yeah, like thinking about, oh, God, I always screw this up every time. And that's when I jump in and I say, really? Every time? Mm -hmm. Every time you've been in this situation, you've screwed it up. Every single time? And they say, well, no, not every time. Okay, stop saying every time then. But mm -hmm. we write our narrative pretty consistently. I say every day we write our story. Mm -hmm. And if the story about things is I never get what I want, well, you're never going to get what you want. And when you do, it won't be good enough or it won't last <laughs> long enough or it won't be as good as you thought it was as opposed to I sometimes get things that I want. And that doesn't mean, by the way, and here's another cultural aspect, getting what we want isn't always a good thing. Sometimes it's the worst thing. <laughs> good point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, wow, I got a million dollars. Now I'm miserable. Because now I'm worried about losing it and I have to protect it and I got to save it and I want to buy this thing, but I don't because, or, you know, whatever, that's an arbitrary yeah. example. <clears throat> or I really, I don't know, I really, really want a relationship and then you're in a relationship and it could not be the right relationship for you. 
Yeah, right. Great point. <laughs> if we so obsess and get narrow with our vision, we're not going to be necessarily choosy about who we get in a relationship with. Well, great. Check the box. I'm now in a relationship with a sociopath. Wow. <laughs> the sex is great, but whoo, is he or she or they crazy? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. If I got my wish. Oh, no. Well, <laughs> I guess I'm curious if you want to share a little bit about like what kinds of things brought you to go into therapy as a client, like in the beginning. Sure. That's a great question. I don't think anybody's ever asked me. That. I love that. Um, well, I saw, I think the first real deep relationship I had with a therapist was I had already had two kids. I'd split with the mother of my child. Up until that point, I think I'd seen three therapists very briefly. Um, and mostly I was looking for answers. I was looking for help. Uh, wasn't very skilled at receiving the help or asking exactly for what I wanted. And so those were largely dissatisfying connections. Um, I'll tell quick stories. I remember one man I saw briefly and I, I realized, I'm like, wow, I'm kind of this dude's therapist. He was older and had been divorced, and he would talk about how he lamented not being able to give his kids the the family life that he'd hoped for. And I was like, why are you telling me this, dude? Mm. <laughs> and it was really weird. And it was also a good experience in terms of a valuable experience of realizing, okay, if I, I, this is something I don't want someone who actually overshares about their life when they're supposed to be asking me about mine. Um, and I think was planting the seeds of me being a therapist many years later as I think about it. So this was someone you were in to be your therapist? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I could tell you more details about their life. We only had like three sessions, all kinds <laughs> of details, uh, because you shared a lot. Um, so yeah, I think to answer your, your original question, there's a real longing there. And also I was struggling, um, kind of lost. And, um, yeah, really realizing what I was doing was unsustainable in terms of my well-being. Mm. So, yeah. again, on some level, there was a smart part of me, conscious or not, that was like, get some help, dude. <laughs> yeah, and it, worked, and it worked for you, like you were saying. Well, yeah, it continues to work mm. as I continue to do my own work. Yeah. The only thing I'm thinking about from our conversation here is how much therapy, psychology, it's it often there's often like a critique of our society that I've found that therapists hold that you know like we were just talking about like with our like trying to figure out what we want to be or what we want to do or um, our very individualistic culture, for example. So I really see. I see psychology at its best as like helping our society to heal as we help individuals to heal. Right. And I think you speak to that. Well, like you often, there's, you know, things like the me too movement, um, like black lives matter or the social justice world. Like it feels very connected with therapy for a lot of people. Like that's like an important part of it, at least for many therapists, maybe not for all, but mm. some, some kind of, whether you're on the left or the right, some kind of social critique is often there because, a lot of our issues, they're not just something that we or just our family created. They're, we're connected with this larger picture, right? Uh, yeah, that, that's helpful. That last thing you said puts me on the map with you a little more. Um, 
that is part of the challenge. We don't just have family wound, you know, family trauma, ancestral trauma. We have cultural, social, uh, political, mm. uh, very real challenges in in the culture that we live in that, that get baked into us. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Another, I think this is relevant here, another central part of my belief and where I work from, move from, has to do with Bill Plotkin's work, the depth psychologist who started the Animus Valley Institute back in the 70s, actually. Um, And he talks about the patho-adolescence, that is the pathological adolescence of this particular culture in the United States, America, the Western culture, um, where nobody really grows up. No, really rarely do people become initiated adults uh, mm. in the world. Hey, that's fascinating to me. Yeah. Yeah. Because we think about certainly what's happening in the world right now with the, um, the insurrection, the sedition, <laughs> uh, the capital just days ago. And, yeah. and I think not to get too political, but, what's been happening in the last four years has been a real amplifier for that patho adolescence of this particular culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would, I would totally roll up in that need to black lives matter, uh, social justice warriors, um, call out culture. They all feel necessary and also parts of a larger process where it feels like they're young in their process, adolescent in their process. And that's not meant to be pejorative at all. Simply, developmentally assessing what, where might those be on the spectrum of, you know, we think of a, of a life maturing. Yeah. I don't know if that's helpful or not, but this, this uh, is pretty rich terrain. Yeah. No, I think it's a, you just made some really good points and it's just, it's just such a rich territory to think about, but that our culture is kind of adolescent it's it's rare to meet an adult who is really mature in a deep way and use the word initiatory initiatory however you say it having gone through an initiated yeah uninitiated and um that is something that our i mean we do have some initiations in our culture but they don't they seem like they've lost the power that other cultures have invested them with like something like graduating from high school perhaps or graduating from college but it doesn't have the it's not quite the same thing. Like, like the, this, this line between becoming an adult and even what that means. And then we have a president who yeah. is very adolescent, right? Like he's, <laughs> yeah, he's utterly. it's like watching, a, um, uh, like, you know, like the, the wrestling matches, you know, like when you're egging people on and <laughs> a lot of that kind of energy. Uh, I love it, man. Yeah. It's like political WWE. Yeah. Um, really. So, yeah. Except we don't get any cage matches, unfortunately. That might solve things a little sooner. (laughs) Under the turnbuckle, Gene. Yeah, be exciting. And then, and then on the on the other side, maybe this comes more from the far left, but the cancel culture, where someone says the wrong thing, or maybe maybe they even made a mistake, or they're taken out of context, and then millions of people Mm -hmm. on Twitter want them to be canceled and unfollowed and never heard from again. And that's very adolescent, in my opinion. It's not a mature conversation about what they, they're not interested in what this person actually thinks and what, where they are in their process and how they could maybe come to a different understanding if their, if their understanding is, is wrong or pain or, you know, 
causing harm in the world. So, yeah, I appreciate that, Julian. It feels like a radical stance these days, uh, and I'm with you. Cancer culture feels, on the one hand, at least in part, again, if we look at it as a process that's in process, not a final product. Okay, maybe we're moving towards um, a, a more functional, uh, fair, balanced, vital process. Certainly, we don't want a bunch of white dudes getting away with shit all the time, which has been mm. the case for hundreds of years. And to your point, canceling someone when we don't seek more context, when we don't seek separate sides, multiple aspects or perspectives on a, on any one challenge, when we don't humanize the person, while also holding them accountable. It's like a cultural mm. uh, dysfunction when it comes to being able to do the both and to be able to say... Hey, Julian, for instance, what you did really hurt people, and I'm struggling to uh, be with you, and I respect you, and I want to find out your side of the story, right? I can hold both of those. Right. That requires us developing a capacity that culturally is utterly dismissed and devalued. Yeah. And even mimicked. Like if I'm not a strong man and I just kick someone's ass or I tell them they're an asshole because they did X, Y, or Z, well, then I'm somehow complicit. And this is where we get into more murky water, right? Um, especially with cancel culture or social justice warriors. You know that if it, you know, if I've ever been mean to a woman in my entire forty-nine years, that makes me a sexual abuser, for instance. Mm. Which just feels like wow, that's violent. Mm. If you know, violence begets violence there, and I, I think that's part of what gets missed in some of these movements is, yeah. especially with call out cancel culture it's like damn that's not going to do any good for you to get revenge i get the reasons why you'd want revenge i'm not trying to say you shouldn't feel like you want some kind of revenge or some kind of justice like okay but how are we getting to it Mm -hmm. and what's the impact long term in in the way we do it yeah yeah i'm really i'm really struck by the adolescent culture (laughs) Maybe I don't want to rag on them too much, but maybe the baby boomer generation has it has a lot of that. Like they were called the me generation, right? Like all about me and sure. uh, but I, I was just talking with someone, how was it like yesterday? And they uh you know, were sharing that they're in middle school, they had this a small middle school, they're female, mm-hmm. they had this small there's like eight other women in the middle school they're friends with, and at one point <sighs> in time they were uh, excluded from that group and ostracized and all the other seven women refused to speak to them. And they ended up leaving that middle school and like how painful that is, how terrible that is to be excluded, like from your friend group. Yeah. And, um, it just, I just feel like cancel culture is a similar kind of impulse. Like this, like just cast someone out, <laughs> you know, not talk to yeah. them, forget their humanity. So. Yeah. Yeah. There's such a, uh, Back to that word, (laughs) adolescence in there. Um, And in a way, it makes sense in middle school. I mean, kids are assholes, man. You know, I was an asshole. Like, everybody knows that. Like, we have the capacity to be really cruel as kids as we find our voice and we find our way. And developmentally speaking, it's utterly appropriate to push boundaries and challenge authority. And and ideally, here's where we run into the problem in the United States especially. Mm. Ideally, we grow out of that shit. And we realize, oh, I was a jerk. Like right. remorse, 
right. compassion, empathy. Um, I remember getting bullied as a kid. And then at some point being so tired of getting bullied, I bullied a kid and I felt awful about it. Within hours, I was like, oh, that's terrible. I'm going to find that person and apologize. Um, I don't, you know, that's one, ex- <laughs> excuse me, one example, but we often don't grow out of that. Yeah. The sort of, like you said, cancel or isolation or ostracization or really vilifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you mentioned uh, Bill Plotkin and he's done a lot with wilderness therapy, right? Like the connection with nature and. Yeah. I don't think he would call it wilderness therapy, but it's some version of that, but it's, okay. it's totally about being in nature, uh, vision fasts, um, quests, uh, a lot of work around mirroring and reflection, um, shadow work, dream work, um, all of it taking place either in the wild, sleeping in tents or solo <clears throat> or, or at retreat centers in the wilderness. Yeah. And he's been doing it for, gosh, yeah. 30 plus years, huh. more 40 years. Yeah. <laughs> And you, you've participated in, in some things like that, like a vision quest. I have. Yeah. I personally, and then also trained, I've assisted on uh, vision fasts um, with the school of last borders and trained with them on three different occasions and considering another training this year, if we can do it in person and then have been on a couple animus Valley yeah. programs. Cool. That's fascinating. Yeah. What? And part of the value there, man, is that, it's one of really the first place I understood what an initiation, like a genuine, hmm. deliberate initiation can look and feel like and the impact of said initiation. Hmm. What, what are some of the ways that it looks like? Like you're there with a, a small group of people. Uh-huh. It seems like, like part of it might be being witnessed by a group, right? Like, Absolutely. It's like an important piece of their, piece of it. Yeah, well said, man. I'm glad you said that because <clears throat> in, in therapy or guiding or whatever it is and, and things like group therapy or men's groups or women's groups, whatever it is, groups for humans, reflection is one of the most powerful aspects of that experience or those experiences for me. Um, like you pointed to, when, for instance, I'll, I'll give an example of in the School of Lost Borders, which is where I did my first, it was a dual, it was a training and also a vision fast. Um, and they do what's called the intention interview before you go out. In this case, it was three days and three nights solo, uh, in the wilderness. Um, and the three precepts are no human contact, no human made shelter, no food. So you're just out there drinking water. You said moving three slowly. days and three nights. Yeah. The first one that I did, that was part of the training. I've done four days and four nights with, uh, the school bus borders too, but, with that initial one, the intention interview where you're, they're asking questions, the guides and maybe an assistant about um, what you want to, what you want to do, what you want to experience, what you're taking into the wilderness with you. Mm. Um, And one of the key things, I love this, this hit me like a ton of bricks and it still hits me like a ton of bricks when I think about it. We don't go into the woods um, and by the way, Bill Plotkin and the Animus Valley Institute, he trained with the founders of School of Lost Borders, Stephen Foster and Meredith Little. So there's a lot of overlap philosophically, ideologically. Um, 
But when we go out in the woods, we don't go out there to find ourselves or discover new parts of ourselves. Hmm. We go out into the woods on solo fasts to, um, how do they put it? Um, basically, that's funny, I'm losing this, the words to this because I've said it many times. Um, we go out to, to really be with who we already are, the things we already mm. are. Like we're not, again, we're not going out there to find ourselves. We're going out there just to be more in contact with who we are. I like that. That's a big... That feels like, you know, and then we come back. Yeah. It is a big distinction. Yeah, we're not going out there like, this goes back to that I can be anything I want. No, actually, mm. you can't. Listen to who you are. Well, yeah. Like create enough space and time and silence to actually be with yourself. Mm. So that's what it is. It's claiming that which we already are. There are the words. Mm. And then when we come back, we receive reflection. We share our story called Story Council. And we receive reflection from the guides and maybe the other questers uh, that have also gone out on solo fasts. And that reflection ends up being incredibly, immeasurably powerful. Because oh. we can't see ourselves as well as, uh, we just can't see ourselves without reflection, I believe. Whether that's being reflected by a tree or a moose or a <laughs> lake or our friends or, or you know, a guide in a, in a situation like this on a wilderness program. Yeah. And I think that last point that we need reflection to see ourselves, I think there is now neuroscience showing some of that. Like, our, you know, our sense of ourself is it's in relation with others, uh, almost by yeah. definition. Um, yep. Yeah. Is there is there a ceremony at the end to kind of mark the, the end of that process? Well, <clears throat> I'll say yes, and because the story council is part of that. That's part of the being witness, being reflected to. And <clears throat> any program or, or vision fast has three phases. The first is the severance phase. The second is the threshold phase. And the third is the incorporation phase. Hmm. So in terms of the ceremony, it's a great question. Um, you know, once we, we do the severance, which basically is tying up loose ends, you know, paying bills, you know, literally cleaning your house, uh, writing letters you meant to write, you know, uh, whatever, it, whatever it ends up being. And then when we go out into the woods, we cross the threshold into the sort of in-between world. We're not the person we used to be. We're also not yet the person we are to become. Mm. Um, and so coming back across the threshold after four days and four nights in the wilderness, um, that certainly is a ceremony unto itself. Um, and then you have a story cancel, and then it's important. They say, do not linger at the threshold. So we basically get our asses kicked back into culture so we can be in the day world and try to incorporate what we what we brought back from the woods. Wow, yeah. Do not linger at the threshold. That's powerful. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. Like don't don't screw around here. Look. <laughs> Okay, you did your thing. You got reflected. Now get your ass back in the day world, and uh, you know whatever ends up happening for you there. I can say go do something, but or go be whatever whatever it is. Yeah, that's beautiful. I mean, so there's a clear, like you just said so well, like this 
leaving behind who you were and then coming back. And then you enter the world again and you're in some sense a new person, right? You're the same person, but you've gone through this process where you, it's an initiation. You're at a new, a new place. Yeah. Yeah. And that has me remembering another critical part of it is that we're essentially going out into the woods to die to our old self. Mm. So there's, you know, some would argue a literal death, albeit not a physical one, um, like a spiritual death, an intellectual death about our old stories. And that's the point of letting it happen, honoring it, marking it, and then coming back across the threshold as this, like you said, still the same, but not. You know, there's a, there's a built-in paradox and a dynamic tension in the process. Yeah. And that goes back to your question around growth. It's like people want to sort of snap their fingers and be miraculously 100 pounds lighter or, you know, 41% sexier or, you know, have 400% times more money. That's not how shit works. Mm. Um, so this incremental growth in this process of, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm basically the same and I'm really different. Mm. Right? It, it seems counterintuitive, paradoxical, and that's important. The mystery is a critical, plays a critical role in this process. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate you saying that. I think just in listening to you, I, after my, you know, my own work, my own life experiences, I'm super skeptical of someone who, I don't know, has some big experience and then the next day they're like, I'm a totally new person. I just <laughs> don't see that. I just don't believe oh. that anymore. Uh, I'm with you, Julian. I appreciate that, man. That goes back to accuracy and reporting. It's like, who of you thinks you're a whole new person? Right. I see the appeal. Like, that would be amazing, you know, to, to for that to happen. Maybe occasionally it does, but yeah. Well, I wonder. It feels like it would be utterly traumatizing on the same hand. Right. Like you'd be not integrated with your past if that was your... Yeah, right. If, if I knew you uh, before my big experience and then I was a whole new person, you're like, hey, Jeff, how's it going? I'd say, well, who are you? <laughs> Sorry, do I know you? I'm a whole new person. I don't know. If you knew me before, I'm not the same. Um, it's well, a little it's, ludicrous. It is. And it's it's funny and we're laughing. But I think um, I think I used to have some sense of, of that or that that could happen. And I know that for people listening probably do. Like, I see it happen, especially with with things like psychedelics because it can be so powerful, so profound, so many insights. And maybe you're um, in a new environment and you're with new people and maybe you take on a new name and you, call, you know, start calling yourself something different and sure. you change your clothing. And, and, and yet this danger of not being integrated, you know, having cut off, having judged your past self as something that you reject, like that's it's just not a recipe for success in the long run. Yeah. 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 I appreciate what you're saying, Julian. I agree. The disintegration, um, as a <clears throat> Utah Phillips, he's dead now, uh, but folk singer, activist, uh, uh, radical. He, he said the past didn't go anywhere, right? We can't get away from our past. He has a hilarious story that he tells when someone talks about, well, the past is gone. And, and he says, you see that rock over there? That rock's thousands of, year old, thousands of years old. I can pick it up and drop it on your foot, and that would hurt. The past didn't go anywhere. <laughs> like, oh, uh. Right here. Um, but I agree about that disintegration piece. Again, with accuracy and reporting, it's, 
it's inaccurate to say I'm a whole new person. Mm. And if unless we're subscribing to this notion that we can be more than one thing, Mm. can I feel like a whole new person and still have all the elements that led me to this point? Absolutely. That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, I think the, what you're pointing to is some version of, I think, spiritual bypass. Yeah. Yeah. I'm no longer, I mean, the extreme on the other end of it, which I don't appreciate necessarily either, is like in Alcoholics Anonymous. Hi, my name is Jeff. I'm an alcoholic. When I haven't drank for 12 years, it's like, right. now, now that feels like an anchor in the past, which keeps me hampered and hindered in terms of growth. Not that I'm poo-pooing AA, because I think it has a lot of value. And I think it's important to look at the both ends of the spectrum there. Right. So, yeah. yeah. I couldn't agree more. It could be really limiting. Like, I'm always going to be this way, and I'm always going to identify this way. <laughs> or rejecting those parts of me that I decide are unsavory, you know, mm. interpersonally or culturally. Nope, I'm no longer that person you knew me as before. In fact, I've changed my name to Windheart, you know, and <laughs> <laughs> I'm now just a child of the light. So uh, I don't actually need to pay rent, So because we're all start us it's like okay that's a little extreme (laughs) (laughs) um i'm I'm poking a little fun there but yeah i mean i have a soft spot in my heart for that kind of thing too i I do think transformation is possible and Mm -hmm. to ground it in the relative world feels so important and yeah i just got in suspicious of quick fixes and easy changes Um, yeah yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, we do have the story of, what is it, Saul in the Bible, like the dramatic conversion on the road. And then he's, you know, realizes the error of his ways and always changes, is always changed after that. So I'm not saying it can never happen, but. Um, well, uh, I feel like, like this notion of enlightenment, mm-hmm. which is all throughout certainly Eastern teachings, the way I understand it is, you know, sort of some version of chop would carry water enlightenment chop would carry water it's not a it's not a constant fixed state that suddenly i'm levitating for the rest of my life there's a great parable that i love that i'll share it's pretty short there's a you know student walking along the river and he sees uh, a master who's got a bag of rice on his shoulder and the student excitedly enthusiastically runs up master master tell me what is enlightenment and the master looks at him and wordlessly takes the bag of rice off his shoulder and sets it on the ground. And the student just blown away. Oh, my God. Wow, that's amazing, master. <laughs> you know, <laughs> make up what, what you will about that. And he says, what happens after enlightenment? And the master, again, wordlessly picks up the bag of rice, puts it back on his shoulder, and continues on his way. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, I love that story. It's like, get over yourself, man. It's not this constant <laughs> state. It's not like... Oh, it, it's like the first time you did cocaine and you just stay high like that forever. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's not true. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a funny example. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it might be more culturally appropriate. You know, this, this whole idea of the challenge, I think you mentioned psychedelics earlier and just drugs in general. I think that's a real significant challenge we have culturally, both with psychedelics and especially pharmacology. Mm. But we take these drugs so that we feel better. Right. And in some objective way, maybe, you know, maybe objective, but certainly subjectively, we feel better. Except we're still working with something that is acting in our stead. 
that is in a way uh, artificially or in a contrived way nudging us to have a particular experience. Um, and back to bypass, when we do MDMA every four days because we really like how we feel, um, that's going to fuck us up. Yeah. It's like like Zoloft for 10 years. Yeah. It's like, you know, our brains literally stop producing the same amount of chemicals because a drug manufactures them for us. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, I think, uh, the atrophy is far more than neurological in those cases. Hmm. It's a great point. And I, it's a whole nother big conversation, but I really wonder in my understanding and research, a lot of the, or almost all the psychiatric drugs, like they're tested for a few years. Like they, they weren't tested. Like what is a lifetime on this drug, like Zoloft or whatever it is look like. And so right. I wish that we had a system where, yeah, you could get prescription drugs to help you. And then there would be genuine follow-up and maybe therapy, for example, to like see if you no longer needed it. And if you can make changes in your life to get to a new place instead of this mm -hmm. model of like, take this for the rest of your life until you die. And yeah, and it's dangerous as I see it, especially in as a psychotherapist. People take something and then they manage to, to actually wean themselves off of it, but the bar has been lowered in terms of self-efficacy. Yeah. I see it pretty consistently when someone, say, is on Prozac or Zoloft or some other cocktail. It's often a cocktail, uh, as you probably know, like two, three, four drugs for, you know, depression, anti-anxiety, anti-convulsants, like you name it. Um, <clears throat> they actually get off drugs, psychopharmacological drugs. And then what do you know? Really predictably, they have a, a hard time because what we're human, we have hard times. And then they tend to go back on the drug, right. which I think reduces our resilience even further to handle challenges, conflict, stress, tension, discomfort. Hmm. And I think systemically in this country for sure, but the world at large, re-pharmacology or psych psychedelics, um, it's dangerous. We're becoming brittle, I think, in our constitutions. Yeah, like too fragile to the lack of efficacy, lack of self-resiliency. Yeah. And it's not to say I want people to suffer. Like if we're in pain, we shouldn't go to the doctor. It's like, okay, you got a broken arm, go to the doctor. You know, if you you know, if, if you're having challenges, like I shared my entry into being a client of psychotherapists, yeah, seek somebody like you or me out. Great. My whole thing is well, let's do it in such a way, to your point, Julian, that we lift you up so that you can come back even more wise, stronger, more knowledgeable, with a greater capacity to be with a wider range of emotions and experience right. without moving so quickly back to old habits that end up being effective at keeping you safe in quotes, but not effective in helping you grow. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. I think, and I think therapy too could be a kind of thing like that where I go every week and then if I miss, if I miss it or don't go, then I'm fucked up or I can't. Mm -hmm. I can't deal with it. And I, I think right. I honestly believe, you know, meditation too could be like that. And I've been questioning this to myself. Like I want to be able to feel resilient and responsible and able to do things in the world without the sense of like, I need this, all this stuff. I have to eat healthy. I have to exercise. I have to meditate or whatever it is. And then I can be out in the world. I think it can be a little bit too much. Uh -huh. um, just certain kind of like, I guess, clinging or dependency. 
to, yeah. to feel like grounded or to feel whatever the way you're supposed to, you think you're supposed to feel. Oh, I appreciate that a lot, Julian. I agree. There's ways in which we can kind of collect in that grasping hungry ghost kind of way, hmm. all the quote, right things. Mm-hmm. Well, I do all these things, therefore I should be good. Um, you know, sort of spiritual flair, spiritual capital that I get to wear the badges of, I meditate, I go to yoga, I go to workshops, I, you know, and nothing against them. But to your point, can we just be in the world? Can we be with sensation? Can we be with discomfort? Mm-hmm. Um, and here, I think we're really pointing to a much longer game. Mm-hmm. As I get older, you know, I'll be 50 later this year in the fall. Um, it's really cool because I get to look at my life more in these years long cycles as opposed to a day or week or month, years long cycles of like, Oh yeah, there was that period where I wasn't really doing a lot of quote healthy things, running, meditating, you know, reading Buddhist texts or self-help books. And I learned a bunch of shit. (laughs) I got myself in sticky situations and I fucked up and I made big messes. And then I, I managed to clean them up well enough um, and then move in the way of self-efficacy and agency back toward meditation, back toward more consistent exercise because why not because somebody told me to, but because I realized, Oh, that'll actually help me be of better service in the world. Yeah. Right. As opposed to like an obligation because I want to fit into my society at large or my local community. Um, so it's a much, I think a much bigger view perspective you're pointing to. Yeah. I like that. Like there's, there could be value in making a mess sometimes. Well, I think part of our problem, especially and speaking specifically of men, I mean, I know, you know, you've been in one of the groups with me. Um, some of my hardest work is making messes and then figuring out how to clean them up. Mm. And and what I mean by that, I'll give you an example. The, for years, I've been a pleaser, a yes man. Uh, it's a no big deal. I don't care. Let's do whatever kind of thing. Mm. Very passive and in a sense collapsed. And I've made some awful messes because of that unconscious automatic behavior. Mm. Because eventually that builds pressure and shit goes sideways. Uh, and then I'm, you know, sort of like, <laughs> totaling the car as opposed to a fender bender and the car's totaled. There's no way to fix it. Mm. Um, whereas moving forward and being more deliberate with, Ooh, I actually don't like this. I'm scared to say I don't like it. Um, and if I don't say I don't like it, I know it's going to bite me in the ass. So let me make a little mess by not being very skillful and, and work to repair it with whomever, my partner, friend, colleague, client, whatever it is. Yeah, that's powerful. It's like uh, being more honest, right? Not, not being more honest. Yeah, well said, man. Like, we have a really tidy society where everyone's supposed to be fucking nice all the time. <laughs> and, and really, truly, it feels like that's part of this huge division in the country is that we got people that, and I think a lot of the value of Trump to millions, clearly tens of millions of people, is that he doesn't give a fuck about anybody right. and it's like a relief to see someone who doesn't care that much because we all exactly because we have to be so pc we have to be so kind all the time when there's so little tolerance culturally for us to be frustrated annoyed even kind of mean um right. and not just 
hate that person, vilify that person, condemn that person. Um, and this gets back to making a mess. Part of my work is, is being able to, especially as a large, deep-voiced um, <clears throat> white male, mm. I can intimidate people, even just with my presence, which is a little frustrating. You know, I've mm. heard that before of like people are intimidated me just because I walk with good posture. Like, what am I supposed to do here? <laughs> but to be able to make a mess and say, God, that pissed me off and risk pissing somebody else off or scaring them or, or intimidating them, but staying relational and saying, hey, that pissed me off and I don't hate you for it. I'd like to talk about it. You know, can we work our way together through this so we have a greater understanding of what's going on as opposed to, I say I'm pissed. They say I'm an asshole. They cancel me or whatever. Right, right. Yeah. I think I think part of what you're speaking to is like if we can make messes and stay in connection, and it's it's so easy to yeah. make a mess and then never talk to that person or block them, or mm-hmm. talk a bunch of shit about them, and because um, it takes it's it's actually more it takes it takes work. It takes effort to connect with someone that you are angry at. Right. It's true. Whatever it is. Yeah. Well, um, you just said something that's really critical. I'll speak to it briefly, and then I want to hear what you got there. The whole notion of blocking someone—that's, mm. I think, one of the greatest downfalls of technology. Yeah, is that it dehumanizes us and makes it so easy to unfriend, mm-hmm. un- unfollow, block, delete, never have to deal, like it never existed. Speaking of transformation, I'm a whole new person. Uh, yeah, <laughs> the quasi transformation. Yeah. Yep. And uh, there's a kind of terrifying, but also fascinating Black Mirror episode. I don't know if you've seen that where they, it's like takes place in the near future. It's like a sci-fi kind of horror dystopian thing on Netflix, but um, you can, uh, basically the plot is like you can block someone and then they can never, you know, see you or talk to you again. And if enough people block a given individual, like they're literally become invisible. Like the technology oh is such that they can be walking around and no one can actually see them. <laughs> oh my goodness. Wow. Yeah, it's wild. That's, that's pretty grim. Yeah, it's pretty grim. Yeah. And then just to add, like our, our culture, our society, we can move so easily. We can meet new people so easily. So there can be there can be good to that, but we're not rooted in a place. And so that we can we can just, yeah, we can block people. We can cancel people. We can... Um, kind of run from our past if we wanted to. I mean, that being said, I think there could be value in moving and being in a new place. But um, it's just it's a it's a an option we have that people in the past just didn't have. You, you just didn't it didn't exist in the past. Agreed. And it has me going back to one of the ways that I can wake up every morning and feel good enough about doing the work that I do and being in the world is seeing that we're in part of a larger, longer process. And so thinking about how, you know, as humans, we utterly needed one another. It was just pragmatic. There was no like, I don't like you, Jim, so you're kicked out of the cave. It's like, no, I actually need Jim to hunt and kill something so I can live. So even though you're a dick, Jim, like just do your job, I'll do mine. Let's, Let's just be cool enough together. And then I think as a culture, we we just learn how to forget very quickly and forgive people 
instantly, sort of in a, in a single news cycle. We forget that Bill Clinton got a blowjob. You know, we forget that uh, Bush committed war crimes. We forget that Trump did X, Y, and Z. Of course, that's more of a volume thing. He does so many dumb, stupid, horrible, violent things. But I think now with cancel culture, I like to see it as part of a much bigger evolution, hopefully a growth, a maturation, an initiation culturally, where we end up arriving somewhere in the middle of not forgetting and also not utterly canceling and hating that we right. do more of that, make a mess and clean it up and learn how to essentially get along and right. live with one another. Yeah. Well, one thing I've heard some, some people like, I'm a, I'm a big Sam Harris fan. I've heard him talk about, we need a way to have a process. Like if someone says something that's offensive and wrong, what would like a legitimate process where they actually apologize in a way that's actually felt and it's legitimate and, and then we can move on. Um, cause we don't, we don't have that as a culture. I, at least I don't think we do. Maybe occasionally we have that, but. Yeah. I think it's more rare than it is common. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, I was going to um, ask you like with your wilderness work, is it, is it, a, is that also like a men's group thing or is it mixed with anyone or. It depends. It certainly can be mixed with anyone. Um, I know the School of Lost Borders offers the Queer Quest, which which is wonderful. It fills up every time it's offered. Uh, and there are specific men's quests and specific women's quests, and there are also co-ed quests. Co-ed's maybe a weird, outdated word, but um, mm -hmm. some version of quests that anybody could be on. Mm -hmm. um, so it varies. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. I guess I was just going to ask you, I know we're maybe getting near the end of our time, but the value you see in holding a group just for men and having that be part of the yeah. the situation, because some people could see that and, you know, it's, it is exclusionary in a certain way. And there's also, mm -hmm. I, I know there's a lot of healing that can happen there. It's, it's, it certainly makes a difference. Yeah. I totally agree. I'm glad you asked the question, Julian. Um, it feels so important because the, the whole notion of inclusivity, uh, there's a paradox in there in that it can reduce the value of everyone when we include everyone. Mm. And, <clears throat> and I think it's a little bit controversial, especially these days. Um, I can say without a doubt, different things are possible when there are only men in a circle. And by men, I mean male identified at birth, you know, cisgendered, their genitalia matches their gender. Um, and that doesn't mean to say, like, I've had groups with gay men, bisexual men. Um, and it's really true. Having been in men's groups for years now and then had guests come to the group, like women, mm. people identify as women, Holy shit, is it a whole different thing? doesn't mean it doesn't have value. And I think it's so important that we we look at, like, let's say you or me forming, joining, participating in a men's group that does not allow, say, women or trans men. Um, that doesn't mean we're exclusionary, prejudiced assholes. Mm. Uh, you know, white, privileged, hetero males. That, that might just mean we need a safe enough container to talk about what it is to be a man in this particular body, in this particular culture. Mm. And that doesn't mean we hate or dislike or reject anyone else. It simply can mean this is what we're choosing to do. Right. 
That's yeah. well said. I think that's important to to be able to name that and to be able to to own that, right? And I think um, yeah. I mean, I've had multiple trans clients, trans men and trans women, and oh, well. certainly worked with uh, really across the whole LGBTQ spectrum. Um, less so than the first few years I was a psychotherapist. And I feel so grateful that I have those connections and, and have more of an understanding. I carry that understanding into a men's group where those folks are not invited, which doesn't mean they're excluded, right? The, the fine line between not inviting someone and excluding someone. Right. Yeah. Which I think points to the, the things you mentioned earlier. In some ways, importantly, there's not a lot of nuanced thinking around certain aspects of, of dynamics culturally. Yeah. Yeah. Of course there's nuanced thinking, but it's just not across the board. Like that distinction between not inviting and excluding, that's Mm -hmm. pretty nuanced. And it also feels important to be addressed and named. Yeah. No, it's a, it is nuanced and it's important to address it. I think, um, just thinking like maybe this reflects the bubble that I'm in, but I've seen, for example, multiple posts on Facebook from women or trans people advocating for men's groups because they see that as part of, as a positive thing, a healing thing that could, at least if they're done in the right way, right, could yeah. increase our acceptance and help with some of these issues. So I think people, oh, that's great. I think people have an intuitive sense that that, you know, in the context of healing and therapy is, is a positive thing. But on the face of it, it could certainly sound like you're saying exclusionary. And so mm-hmm. it's good to like name that and talk about it. Yeah, and I'm glad to hear your experience there. Yeah, um, yeah it's been interesting to see that. Yeah, I certainly do get support from women specifically, pretty consistently saying thanks for the work that you do, um, which I so value. That's good um, to hear. Yeah. yeah, for to your larger point of, hey, if we're increasing consciousness and skill level and capacity to be more uh, intelligent and wise, intrapersonally and interpersonally, sweet. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, great. Um, you have any uh, any last words you want to share with us? Well, I appreciate the conversation, Julian. I really, I really do. I appreciate your <clears throat> what what the culture might label some fringy perspectives, <laughs> and I, I like that you take take risks in terms of the way you view the world and the way you um, point to particular aspects of culture that don't match up uh, for you with the cultural valuation. And so I appreciate our conversation. Yeah. Thanks. I appreciate that. I guess my, my intention, I don't know if I'm not perfect at it, but it's to just be more and more honest. And if someone comes to me and, and shares a difference and they can convince me that, their point of view is, is better than, than what I was saying, then I'll, I want to be flexible enough to go over and say, okay, you're right. And change my thinking. But I think yeah. the way to get there is to be really honest and like to, and to vocalize and not be afraid of saying something just because it's not, might not sound politically correct or whatever. Or, yeah. Uh, so it just feels like a huge value for me. Yeah. I'm so glad. Uh, and the same is true for me working to be more honest, uh, and it, it's risky and I think it requires courage. Um, it makes me think of Brene Brown. Um, mm. she of you know, shame, guilt research and many books and talks yeah. who's I think really a phenomenal human and resource. And 
something that she has said, I hold close the more I'm in this world and the more I offer things in the world. She said, if we're doing our work and we're showing up and we're not pissing somebody off, we're not actually showing up. And that's not to say try to piss people off, but if we are being honest, if we are actually taking a stand, if we are actually sticking our necks out, someone will disagree and maybe many will disagree and sometimes vehemently. And that's part of the, can we have the courage to take those risks and be in what's true while, as you pointed out, remaining open enough and adaptable enough to incorporate an aspect that maybe we hadn't considered to hopefully fortify our worldview and expand it in a way that is good for not just us, but for the greater good. Absolutely. Yeah. Great. Thanks for, thanks for being honest. It's great. Yeah, Julian. Thanks for having me, man. I enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to support this show, you can share it with your friends. You can post about it. We do have a Patreon, patreon.com backslash state of mind. And I love hearing from you. You know, if you like the show or not, send me a message. And I really do appreciate the positive messages I get. They're like, it was a great conversation. That was a great episode. And if you can include something more specific, like let me know what it is you liked about it or didn't like, something you thought about differently, an insight you had, or something you disagreed with, whatever it may be, send me a message if you want, be a part of the conversation. I will continue to include listener feedback here. And uh, check out our YouTube channel. We've got a lot of videos up now, more coming all the time. All right, take care, and I will see you here next time.